Hello, Podcast Nation. You are listening to my autobiography, Tina Lives, written and read by me, Tina. Who am I? Nobody. But when asked the simplest questions in life, like, where are you from? There was never a simple answer. So I decided to jot the answers down in a book about growing up hippie, surviving the South, and getting the hell out, which is why Tina lives. Act 2, 1972 to 1975, a magic brownie kind of life. Episode 1, Store Street House. I drifted off on the plane ride, and when I awoke, my new life resembled the imaginings which I had created for myself during my times of incarceration. Like a crazy pippy long stocking cartoon come to life, I had traveled seamlessly from one end of life's spectrum to the complete opposite. Gordon Darling Hitt, which was his full name, was intimidating to meet. Like my mother, he was dark-haired and dark-eyed, with a personality so large he, like she, needed all the extra oxygen in the room just to survive. But in this opposite world, I would soon learn that Gorton's bigness, which also required navigation, was for the good, the good of mankind, that is. Gorton's wide mouth, toothy smile, which was framed by a lion's mane of long hippie hair, was beaming with the appropriate amount of cautious respect as he opened the door to my new life. A life that would begin in a basement apartment in Fayetteville, Arkansas. The apartment was cool and dark and a welcome relief to the hot, caustic brightness of my bedroom on the bogs. The stench of the can still haunted me, but my olfactory senses were distracted by the smells of Gorton's reality. A combination of incense, cigarettes, mildew, and marijuana. The living area was an open space defined by the studs that held up the house and could not be mistaken for anything other than a damp basement. There were three separate bedrooms, but not a real bathroom. The shower was a fiberglass shell sitting in the middle of the kitchen area, and the toilet was perched on a pedestal in a tight cubby resembling an outhouse. The door to the cubby was not full length, so you could watch people's feet as they did their business. I found this horrifying and would only use the toilet when no one else was around. Two black Naugahyde couches, cushioned with orange and purple pillows, sparkling and reflecting with tiny round mirrors and colorful stitching, created a living room. Towering in the shadows and cobwebs were overstuffed bookshelves made of cinder blocks and wood. 
Resting along the periphery of rock and sandy walls sat random piles of bicycle parts and undetermined debris. My first sense of the apartment, besides the smell, was how mellow, free, and exhilarating it felt. And even though a woman's touch was nowhere to be found, it felt like home. Much to my amazement, Gorton had fixed up a room just for me. It was nice and cozy, and when I first walked in, my heart exploded with a strange, sad joy. The bed was made with crisp white sheets, a colorful quilt, and next to the bed, a bookshelf with books, a radio, and a small lamp. The room was sweetly pampered, and I could not believe that a complete stranger had put so much effort into trying to make me feel comfortable. I welled up with an emotion that I dared not show because I didn't know how to act in front of Gordon. I was hesitant to trust his kindness, but there it was, shining right in front of me. For the first couple of days, I woke up every morning with a smile on my face, relieved to believe that Diana was a million miles away. I had never felt so much space before, and each morning it sometimes took minutes before my feet would touch the ground. I didn't miss one thing about my mother or where I had just come from, and in my mind, I was never going back. There were twinges of guilt for leaving my siblings behind, which tried to ruin my happiness, but I shut them down. I erased the past as if it had never happened, and instantly I loved Gorton as much as any young girl with a broken heart enclosed in steel armor could. At 25 years old, this goofy-looking stranger rescued me, welcomed me into his life, and for that I would always be grateful. Gorton had a roommate. His name was Bob Tarlow, and just like Gorton, he was a hippie with a bushy beard. I had been so isolated in my previous life that I forgot all about the hippies, but here they were, just like I remembered them, happy, hairy, and full of strange ideas. Bob liked to bake onions and eat them, and Gorton liked to smoke, drink, and infuse gallons of black coffee into his nervous system. Both men were extremely intelligent, but they were opposites as far as I could tell. Bob was built sturdier than Gorton, more solid like an ox. He was a meditative man who used words that I had never heard before and spent his nights alone reading. Gorton was a skinny bundle of energetic nerves with animated facial features that were sometimes scary and sometimes cartoonish. He was a people person who loved women and the art of conversation, but he did have his quiet moments. Usually, when he was writing grants or proposals for whatever altruistic project he had going on. Bob told me that he was a Jew, but I didn't know what that meant. He never explained it, so I just had to figure it out on my own. I decided that being Jewish had something to do with being from New York. That's where Bob was from. Or maybe it had something to do with the baked onions he loved to eat. Whatever it was, Bob was a strange man. But that was okay, because he was also a good man, I could tell. 
When I got to Fayetteville, Gorton had three different jobs besides managing his restaurant the way it is. This left him no time for the logistics of a budding preteen. So Bob, with a quiet sense of authority and without being asked, picked up the slack of attending to my basic needs, laundry, food, and hygiene. I was never completely comfortable around him because of his silent and stoic ways, which I interpreted as aggravated with me. Gorton never told me why or for how long I would be staying with him, and he didn't give me any rules to follow or a list of expected behaviors. He didn't act like he was trying out parenthood, and if anything, I felt more like his roommate. I was left to do my own thing, and it was scary because I had never experienced so much freedom before. It took a while to adapt. All of a sudden, no one was screaming at me or watching my every move, and my mind and body needed time to catch up. I was encouraged to wander about town and create my own life, which I did with slow and cautious steps. Although I considered Gorton to be a lifesaver, our personalities didn't fall into an easy rapport. Gorton had his childlike moments, but he wasn't very good with kids. In the first weeks of our acquaintance, we floated around each other, courteously but in self-contained bubbles. Mine was made of hope and fear, and his was either the buzzing live wire of too much caffeine or the pot-induced fogginess of extreme and profound thoughts. I was never sure about anything when it came to Gorton, but my mother had always told me that actions speak louder than words. And that's exactly how Gorton lived his life. He was a doer, and he did all kinds of things for all kinds of people. At the end of August, I had my 10th birthday, and I was a free girl now, so I decided to bake myself a cake. It never occurred to me to use a cookbook, so I just combined what I thought were the right ingredients. I presented my creation to Gorton, and he ate one slice after another, as if it were the best thing he'd ever eaten. Once devoured, he raved on and on about how delicious it was, but I knew better. I couldn't eat one piece of that cake, it was so disgusting. What I ate instead was the cupcake with a candle on top that Gorton brought home for my birthday. I nibbled away with an unfamiliar calm and satisfaction, a satisfaction that filled my belly with the sweet love of chocolate and the unfamiliar sensation of happiness. In 1972, Fayetteville was home to a very large and thriving hippie community. The hippies took over the small college town, but were also living in communes scattered in and around the Ozark Mountains. Gorton's Restaurant, The Way It Is, was a vibrant and lively gathering place for all the counterculture creatures that Gorton called his family and friends. 
he affectionately coined a term to describe them, a family called us. Within that community, Gorton was a big hippie guru who got things done. He was a magnetic community organizer with great big powers of persuasion and a very popular guy. I wondered if Mr. Popular had a girlfriend, so I asked him about it one day while we were walking up one of the steep hills in Fayetteville. He didn't give me a yes or no answer. He just started singing the Eagles song, Take It Easy, which I guess implied that he had several women on his mind. There was one woman that I was very curious about. She was tall, dark, and beautiful, and had long, brown, wavy hair. Her skinny body dangled and jangled with delicate jewelry, and she smelled sweet and musky like pretty hippie women do. She seemed to be trying very hard to win Gorton over, which I thought was strange for such a pretty lady. I assumed love came easy for pretty women, but whatever she was doing, it wasn't working. And that's when she started focusing all her attention on me. She was pretty to look at, but I didn't trust her, and Gorton never gave any indication that I should. She may have been a wonderful woman, and we may have been the best of friends, but she picked the wrong kid at the wrong time. Talking to me was like talking to a brick wall. I trusted no one, and her sweet and manipulative words went in one ear and out the other. The job of breaking through was going to take years with a sledgehammer, and I don't think she had the patience. She disappeared one day, a fading ripple of beauty, floating away on the everlasting stream of women that showed up late at night to Gorton's bed. I hung out at the way it is every day after school. The place was a pinwheel of colors, smells, and personalities, and there was always someone to talk to. But my chattiness had gone away, and I was surprised to learn that I was actually a shy person. So I did what shy people do. I cocooned myself in the soothing quiet in a room at the back of the restaurant. I didn't want to leave Fayetteville, and I was afraid that my big mouth would get me into trouble. I decided that my best option was to keep quiet, and besides that, I was used to being alone. It had become a hard habit to break. The room in which I found refuge was painted orange and purple, and the windows were covered with red paisley curtains that kept out the world and the hot, blistering Arkansas sun. In the center of the room was a large wooden table that had once been an industrial wire spool. It was low to the ground, so instead of chairs, you sat on pillows. A soft golden glow of light emanated from a jukebox placed in the corner, and I played my two favorite songs over and over, Louie Louie and the Duke of Earl. I could sing every note, but hardly any of the words. Gorton's friends were intrigued by the notion of me. I could tell because they would slink down the hallway to the back room and check me out. 
Most were nice, and I was warming up to their attention, but in the beginning I felt like a circus freak. There's something condemning about a child whose parent gives them away at the age of nine years old. There was also the mystery of why Gorton, a man with so much on his plate, had rescued a somber preteen with empty suitcases and a crapload of baggage, especially since Gorton already had a son. I never met him or even heard much about him, but he was out there somewhere, not being raised by Gorton. There was a 17-year-old waitress at The Way It Is who came the most consistently to the back room to see me. She brought roast beef sandwiches, orange juice, and the sledgehammer required to break through my sullen walls. And instead of a sly inquisition, she cracked jokes. She wore those long hippie skirts made out of old blue jeans inserted with a colorful triangle between her legs. Her looks were good in that devilish maiden style of the early 70s. She had thick, voluptuous lips, eyebrows thinly tweezed, and long, straight hair center parted around a heart-shaped face. She didn't talk sweet or southern because she was neither. She was a solid, working-class girl from Illinois who banged around in big, heavy boots, smoked Viceroy cigarettes, and drank Schlitz beer from a can. Her name was Sue, and she became my new friend and surrogate mother. She'd walk me home every night from the restaurant, giving me all kinds of attention and treating me like someone who deserved consideration. I didn't know why she did or what she wanted, but she was ballsy and fun, and I couldn't help but go along for the ride. I figured she wanted Gorton, but she told me that she thought he was weird and unattractive. I couldn't believe it. Gorton was so charismatic that I didn't think any of the women could resist him. But Sue did, and that's one of the things I liked best about her. Sometimes we would hang out at her house where she lived with another hippie lady who was pretty in that dainty sexual flower kind of way. She was much more feminine than Sue, and her beauty intimidated me. I would clam up around her, but I watched her every move. I wanted to be like her when I grew up, a pretty, dainty, sexual flower enticing all humans with my charm. One night, I sat at their kitchen table, watching them get ready for a night out. I started fondling a dried-up piece of nature that was sitting next to an ashtray. Sue asked me if I knew what buttons were, and I thought I did, but it turns out that I didn't. These buttons were peyote, and you ate them to get high. They looked like figs to me, so I knew if offered, I would never put one in my mouth. I asked Sue what getting high was like, and she told me that getting high opens up your mind so that you can be free. I told her the buttons were ugly and stupid, and she shouldn't put them in her mouth. She glanced at me all-knowingly. You're a sweet little party pooper, but now it's time for you to go home. Sue was growing more and more protective of me, which I found soothing and confusing. Officially, she was no one to me, so I didn't know whether or not I should be listening to her. Our first time to butt heads came when I developed a crush on a tall, dirty, 
red-headed man who frequented the Great Mandela, another one of Gorton's projects. It was a community-based switchboard where people were given free access to any information they needed. Sue was one of the volunteers, and I would hang out with her while she answered the phones. The Great Mandela was located in a church basement, and the room was filled with nothing more than tables, chairs, phones, and notebooks. It had such a grand and pretty name that I thought it would be more colorful and exciting, but it wasn't. It was mostly boring until the day the redhead showed up. He was tall, gangly, and barefoot, and he had dirty feet, which I normally hated, but he was so enthralling that I let it slide. His hair was the color of muddy blood, and his face was boyish with slightly chiseled yet fleshy features. His deep brown eyes were wise and mysterious, and he never spoke a word. He walked around like he was in his own little world, and I wanted to be in there with him. I found his demeanor so captivating that I went up there every day hoping to see him. I would flush pink with puppy love when he'd walk in, but I never said a word. I would just watch him. When he left, I would follow him as far as I could, but his legs were so long I couldn't keep up. I wanted to know all about him, so one day I asked Sue what she knew. I didn't come right out and tell her that I was in love with him, but I must have been glowing because Sue freaked out. She went instantly from being my buddy to some kind of mother. She told me that she was concerned for my safety and not to follow him anymore because he was schizophrenic. I didn't know what a schizophrenic was, so it didn't scare me. And I sure didn't know why Sue was being so weird and bossy. She wasn't my mother, and I wasn't obliged to listen to her. And I was most certainly going to follow him whenever and wherever I wanted to. And for a while I did. But after giving Sue lots of who-the-heck-are-you attitude, I decided to listen to her. Because I began to notice the shape-shifting face of schizophrenia and her worries were starting to make sense to me. Sometimes I would hear my love screaming insults at the bushes, ranting to the sky, or rocking furiously on a park bench. And that's when he looked scary, unpredictable, and completely unattractive. I was reluctant to let him go because the mystery of him was so under my skin, but I had to. The option of falling in love with him seemed very limited. The fates must have been pulling Sue towards her destiny, because why else would a 17-year-old woman want to hang out with a 10-year-old little girl? Sue's future was with Gorton and me, and that's when I found my calling. Gorton had his projects, and now I had one too. I was going to get these two together, and in the process, I would rid our lives of all those other women hanging around. They were all nice, but they were insincere, and they wanted only one thing, Gordon. In order to protect my new life, I put myself in their way, and with the subtlety of a hormonal preteen, I made myself the gatekeeper to Gordon's bed. Not just anyone was getting in. 
and creamy, delicious girl pops were definitely not allowed. Thinking back to the summer we 